Hello, and welcome to The Franklin Files. I'm Gordon Franklin, and I'd like to thank you for joining us and listening to this message today. I trust it'll be a real challenge to your mind, a comfort to your heart, and practical hope for the chapter of life that you're facing today. You have the Word of God with you tonight, and be so kind as to turn to the second chapter of Philippians. I'd like to read through with you a few verses there as we center our attention on what God is going to say to us through that passage. Philippians chapter 2, the second chapter, the 12th verse, where uh, Paul, writing to this northern Greek church, said this, So then, my beloved, as you have always observed, not uh, as in my presence only, but now in my absence as well, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And here's the first way how. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation amongst whom you appear also as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I might have caused a glory that I didn't run in vain. But even if I'm poured out, as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service for your of your faith i'll rejoice and i'll share my joy with you also and you you too i urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me amen and may god and he will bless his his word businessman made an appointment with his doctor for 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And he arrived on the split second, consulting his wristwatch as he did. But the doctor, as doctors sometimes are, was late, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes late. And by the time he got to the consultation room, the man was fuming and fretting and had added up to an ill-concealed irritation. You're late, he yelled at the doctor continuing to pace back and forth. And the doctor just looked at him kind of philosophically as they do and scientifically and speculatively and said, look, friend, please sit down. Man snapped back, I got no time to sit down. I'm a busy man. Well, the doctor said, maybe you are. Maybe that's why you're here. So sit down while I go over you. And the doctor or the man reluctantly seated himself and the doctor said well what seems to be your problem sir what brought you here well the doc said uh, doc the man said i it's just trying to function in the world in which i'm i'm living i have absolutely no peace no quiet there seems to be nothing but pressure and tension there's like a wound up spring inside me and and he finished off by saying doctor i'm all run down well, the doctor said, well, let's look into it. So he took his pulse. Matter of fact, he took it twice, which didn't add to the man's peace of mind at all. Then he got that cool stethoscope out and put it on the man's chest and over his heart and on his back and muttered something unintelligible and hummed and hawed as they do. Then he got that blood pressure machine out and pumped up until his arm was purple and pumped it up again and peered at it in that wise, mysterious look. The 
medical doctors can give you while they're doing that. And ask him, now, what did you say was wrong with you again? And he said, well, I'm all run down. I'm all run down. Doctor replied, well, your, your symptoms may indicate that, but I think your diagnosis is mistaken. I think you're not all run down. I think your trouble is you're all wound up. And the reason you feel run down is because you are so wound up. Well, he said, Doc, give me some medicine. Can't you give me some kind of tranquilizers or picker-uppers or slower-downers or something? Well, the doc said, what kind of medicine do you want? He said, well, you're, you're, you're the doctor. You decide the medicine. Well, he said, would you take anything I gave you? Well, he said, I'm paying you, am I not? So the doctor, who was a wise and a rather whimsical old chap, got out his little prescription pad, you know that little pad they have with a squiggly snake on it and the RX in the corner, which literally means take thou. And he wrote this prescription. COL315, take liberally three times daily. Well, the man took it, didn't think much of it, stuffed in his pocket, thought it was some kind of hieroglyphics. Latin or something, and left. Went over to the drugstore to the pharmacist and showed the prescription across the counter and said, fill this. The doctor wants me to take it and apparently take it three times a day. Druggist looked at it and said, we don't, we don't have any of that in stock. He said, why? No, we don't have any of that in stock. Well, what kind of a pharmacy are you? that you don't have it in stock? Well, we don't keep this one in stock. And he said, well, wh what does this mean? Anyway, COL315, what kind of a drug is it? And the pharmacist said, well, I see, sir, that obviously you are not acquainted with your Bible. This means Colossians 3, verse 15. And the guy said, well, what in the world is that? Well, the druggist said, my knowledge of the Bible doesn't go to specific verses. So anyway, the doctor wants you to go home and to read Colossians 3.15 as a medicine and to do so three times a day. Well, the man tore home and dusted off his Bible with which he wasn't too familiar. And after about 25 minutes, found Colossians, which some of you are trying to find now. That may have been one of the reasons he was there. And when he did, he read these, these words. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Literally, let the peace of God umpire. Let the peace of God decide all the matters of your heart, the heart you were called, referring to the, the spirit and the soul and the personality, your whole inner being. Well, the man was so intrigued and rather irritated that he called the old doctor up again and said, I want to see you about that prescription you gave me. And the doc says, I knew you'd be back. And he said to him, look, look, my friend, I, I wouldn't treat you flippantly or from a physical or a physiological point of view. If you were actually physically sick, I would have handled that in a proper matter, manner. But your trouble is not physical sickness. Your trouble is, is one that just thousands and millions and probably many of us here tonight struggle with. You're, you're out of emotional control. And the noise and the confusion and the conflictedness of your work, 
and your church and your society and the family and has invaded the control centers of your life and your 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 healing is never going to come from a pill bottle it's only going to come from a biblical perspective for his peace and friends in Christ is true tonight there's not a man or a woman sitting here who doesn't need that prescription but I think I hear a question you say well yeah put that to a vote everybody will vote from it standard preachers fair great little story but you haven't helped me much because you didn't tell me what I really need to know and that is how in the world or where in the world can I get this prescription from the Spirit of God for spiritual and emotional mental health what are the components of this peace that can then arbitrate or make the decisions I have to make in Calgary Edmonton or wherever I may live well that's the miracle of scripture because I think the verses that we read tonight in the chapter from Philippians do tell us as Paul expands on and dispenses a prescription for peace an answer for the things and three of the things that in my observation are robbing more of us of the peace of God than probably any other three things in all of our society today let's take a look at what he says and what they are Paul says one a little col 315 God's peace then start living first of all with nothing to prove secondly he says start keep living with nothing to hide and thirdly in this paragraph he says you got to live with nothing to lose now that's the way to have col 315 so first he says in verses 12 to 13 the only way to work out your salvation not earn but work out your salvation with fear and trembling and still have God's peace in your heart and mind is to realize he says that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work his good pleasure now friends if you can get a handle on that if I could get a handle on that that leaves you living with nothing to prove and what a peace supplier that is I think there's few things that are so effectively and devastatingly robbing God's people just kicking these spiritual slaps out of God's people as much as this particular thing and I should know I've really never mentioned this I don't think I've ever mentioned it in my ministry and it's not particularly easy but I'm a survivor of this first problem maybe some of you are too and maybe this can help I spent the first two-thirds of my life in ministry unbeknownst to probably anyone maybe even myself for a while I think trying to prove to myself however and to my family and to my peers and to my God probably that I was a valuable person living with something to prove and as a result although it was seldom verbalized except to a very understanding and loving wife I became a driven person a basket case rushing from one accomplishment and one goal and one performance and one production to another one trying to show my 
my peers and my friends and my God. Hey, my work's valuable here. And I tell you, that can rob you of peace. I wonder if there's anybody else here tonight. You're sitting here and you're saying, man, I resonate with that. I am finding that I am living with something to prove that doesn't need to be proved. Maybe you need to ask, how does it start for you? I think for me, and not to take a long time on it, rooted way back to childhood. In primary school, I think I always felt inferior. I was raised in a wonderful Christian home, but with parents who were extremely introverted and shy, and I seemed to magnify that in them. I'd see all those kids at school who were extroverted, you know, and outgoing and were able to mix and mingle at the parties, and I wished that I was like them, you know, valuable, worthwhile, and I wasn't like them. Then I'd mentioned earlier, for those of you, many of you were here on Wednesday, how that as, as well as that, I'd always struggled with a, a weight problem and on top of all of the problem and the teasing you get with that, the pain of seeing those little 80-pound skinny little runts, you know, whiz by you on the track and field. And then on top of all that, I got, and you got to remember this is the 50s, not the 90s. I was left-handed in a right-handed world. For the first four or five years of my school, they tried to force me to play ball and to play hockey and even to write for a while right-handed. Now, when you try to do that, you'll find yourself, as I did, right down there at the tail end of the team. You're the kid that the captains are always arguing over. You take them. No, you take them. You can have them. And I told you on Wednesday a little bit about Little Hell House on the Prairie. It also was a tough school. I mean, a tough school, favorite pastime of the bigger boys. You're looking at me like you're making that. No, I'm not. Was to make us smaller boys box with one another, bare-fisted. I am not a fighter. I do not like fighting. Two, three times a week, we'd be forced to box. It was a kind of a school sport. Let's see the little kids destroy one another. It's easy for you to laugh. And I, I grew up really totally unsure of myself and really quite disliking myself or unsure and disliking the people around me and angry at God. I remember hearing a Sunday school teacher say, once to us, God made you the way that you were made. And I thought, what happened? Did he have an off day? Did he blow an experiment? When he made me? Then it all changed. I hit grade 11. And I met an English teacher by the name of Mrs. Cox, who made us develop a public speech program and made each of us carry out a, and deliver a public speech of five to seven minutes. And after we had done, gone through that all year and delivered it, she came to me and she said, Gordon, you have a marvelous gift for being able to put words together and you should go into public speaking and go into a public speaking contest. And I fought it, kind of didn't think much about it at first. But I entered the contest and I won the school final and I won the district final, and I won the divisional final, and I went to the provincial finals. 
And I began to realize that God doesn't make any mistakes, friends, because the next fall he was in the process of calling me into a ministry where publicly communicating the gospel would be very, very important. And that was wonderful except for one thing. It was tragic because I wasn't healed. I wasn't whole. And I think really I spent the first 15 or 20 years of ministry, although the Lord had graciously allowed me to teach and to work and to preach with hundreds and probably thousands of young people on uh, colleges and campus and camps like this and seminars. But I was still using whatever little gift God had given me to prove what didn't need to be proven. Because I, and though I, I love the Lord, I was working for the Lord, I, I made this horrifying discovery that I was moving in precisely the opposite direction in which I should be going to find His peace. And there was still this aching desire to be valuable to Him. Just yelling and welling up on the inside. As if I was saying, look at me, Lord, I'm okay, please affirm me. Look at the things that I've done for you. I've taught thousands at colleges and camps and seminars, and this went on and on until 1986, when I really just about lost it all in burnout. And why? Because I didn't hear the small voice of that very, very same God saying, I love you, Gordon Franklin, just as you are. You've got nothing relax you've got nothing to prove I didn't hear him whisper as it were as Paul is saying to us in verse 13 it is I it is God who is in you to work and to accomplish the good work and will you've got nothing to prove and he was trying to tell me if you couldn't say another word tomorrow for me I'd love you just as you are if you never shared with another person at Bible school or any place else, I'd love you just as much as I always did, as I did yesterday. If you stumble and fumble the ball and fall as you have many times before, my love for you won't diminish one tiny little bit. And he was whispering, take that peace. Take that peace. You've got nothing to prove. You've got nothing to prove. At the time in which it happened, the man was the top comedian, you'll recall, in the country. He had his own television uh, show, all of the apparent trappings of success. But that didn't stop Freddie Prince from taking a gun and putting it to his head and pulling the trigger. And just before he died, he left a hard-wrenching message, you'll recall, for his friends, which simply said this. I cannot hear them laughing anymore. May I translate? Their laughter, his performance, his production wasn't bringing meaning anymore. It wasn't bringing fulfillment for him anymore. Because all human pleasures and all human satisfactions and performances operate on the principle of diminishing returns. And only the approval of Jesus Christ will bring a non-diminishing peace. Amen? Only knowing that the the, the creator of all of the universe and all of this beauty you see outside and all of us loves us in an unqualified way will help me enough, will help us to relax enough and be able to say, I got nothing to prove. He's done it all for me. It was at a Christian camp 
like this one, that some of the young people teased a little boy by the name of Travis because he suffered from mental retardation and he slobbered all the time and he kind of lisped when he talked and he couldn't run and emotionally and mentally he was a cripple. On the ball field, much as like what we were talking before, one captain, then the other would argue, you take him. No, you take him. No, we don't want him. You take him. I don't know what his IQ was, but I know in a moment like that, he knew he was being rejected because he couldn't prove his worth. Finally, one of the counselors made one of the teams take him so he could play. And, but it was on the last day of the camp, and they were all standing around the buses and waiting to, to go home when in the distance they, they heard Travis's voice coming. They could hear him. They could hear him shouting. Good news! Good news! And he got closer and closer to the group, they said, and, and, and he broke right into the group and said again, Good news! Good news! Jesus loves me! Jesus loves me! And he broke from that group and went into another one, and you could hear him sharing all over the camp. Friends, as I said, I don't know what his IQ was, but I do know this, that in that moment, Travis discovered something that some of all the philosophers of life never discovered, and that is that Jesus looked at him and what the world would call defects, loved him just the way he was. He had nothing to prove. And he changed that little boy's life. And that little boy's life, in turn, through his story, has changed many of ours. Between the uprights, the goalposts of the Super Bowl, you who are gridiron fans will know, there's a man at the Super Bowl who wears a rainbow wig. You ever seen him? In the end zone. The world calls him a fool. Because he holds up a sign that simply says John 3.16. I wonder how many guys sitting with a can of beer see that sign and say, Geraldine, get that old Bible down. Let's take a look again and see what it says. And they read those words that God so loved us, the world, that he gave his son for them. Friends, in 24 hours as we leave this camp and we go back to a world that I do know for many of us is so frantic and so hectic and so fraught with turmoil within your own family, let alone your work situation, that it offers very, very little peace. As we do that, let's never forget that the Father, when he looked down on that Friday that we called good and said, I give you my son. It's as if the very rocks cried out, Good news! Good news! You've got nothing to prove. You've got nothing to prove. You can live with my peace. But there's some of the rest of us here that are not being robbed by God's peace in your inner heart. Not so much by living with something to prove rather than nothing to prove, but because you're living a double life of something to hide. So in verse 15, Paul begs them as he does us, you want God's peace? He said, 
than live with nothing to hide. So he says, live in such a way that you can prove yourself blameless and innocent children above reproach to all the world that watches, living with nothing to hide. Friends, if you do want to have the peace of God flooding, just flowing through your heart and mind, I'm convinced more and more that this is the only way to fly, living with nothing to hide. You cannot run a good race looking over your shoulder, and a lot of Christians are trying. You really can't. You will not have his peace when you're living one life in the setting of a Christian camp and another life in Barhead. You cannot have COL 315 and do that. I talked to all kinds of people that have gone through it and, and verified that. In the last, I was thinking, the last five, six years, I can think probably of 10 of my fellow workers who have fallen spiritually, morally, by the wayside, their spirits broken, their faith just shattered. Talked to one of them some years back. He said it was ironic. He said, even though I knew I was being destroyed, I was lured into this thing. And he said the only explanation that he had, and I do believe it's true, is that Satan had him in his sights. And let me tell you, friends, I do believe Satan has us in his sights. And he told me he was afraid, he said. Every time the phone rang that somebody knew about his, that double life, that room of his life that was closed. Because he said, while I was exporting the word to others on Sunday, I wasn't imparting it and importing it to myself. And as a result, he got caught up in living one life on the road and another life in front of his wife and family. And he was terrified, absolutely terrified all the time that one would find out about the other. The result, no peace. Amazing heartache, miserable soul, the most miserable you ever saw. Why? Because he hadn't taken care of the very thing that was just bleeding him dry. If you're here tonight like that and you've got something to hide, you will never, friends, in Christ, as straightforward and simple as that, have the peace of God until you take care of that which is bleeding you dry. And you understand that this guideline that we read in verse 15 is not to destroy you, not to put shackles on you, not to damper your fun, but to give you a guideline that'll help you from falling in the holes that'll destroy you. Jay Kessler tells a fascinating story about how they used to initiate Boy Scouts. He said they would blindfold them first and then take them into a small cabin and take them out that way afterwards as well but take them into a small cabin where they would be told there were three very deep wells in the cabin. Then they would set them in the middle of the floor and put a small rock in their hand and turn them around and around until they were quite disorientated and tell them to drop the rock. Now they would drop the rock, but because they were blindfolded, they couldn't see that one of their friends caught the rock. And then about three or four seconds later, they would drop the rock in a pail of water. They said even though the blindfolds were on, you could see the edges of their eyes just widen in terror as they thought, man, that must be deep. Then they would tell them that they were going to leave them just for 60 minutes for an hour. And they would be back to get them and they could leave if they liked. He said of all the initiates they had, not one, not one ever moved from where they were because they didn't know where the holes were. 
God has given us this book for COL 315 to show us where the holes are so you can have the peace of living with nothing to hide. But I hear somebody saying, oh, that's so restrictive, that's so straight, Gord. Oh, somebody's put it this way and it's beautiful. He who is enslaved to the compass has the freedom of the whole sea. Do you want the freedom of the whole sea? Of his forgiveness, the freedom of the whole sea, of his forgiveness and his peace from worry and guilt and shame and stain that you're hiding. There's one way to come back to the compass that can guide you through the holes and the shoals and the rocks that'll smash your life in a thousand pieces otherwise. I know that runs counter to say there's one way. It runs counter to everything that we're hearing in our relativistic Alberta culture. I know that big lie, friends. I know that it's out there and many church people are buying into it as well. That it really doesn't matter how you live as long as you're sincere. You can hide some of those things or just tuck them in in your business life because you're sincere and you're a good tither and you're supporting and all the rest. Come on. We wouldn't buy that for a minute in any other area of life because we know it wouldn't bring peace. It doesn't bring peace. It brings guilt and grief and stain and sorrow and worry and all kinds of problems. Wouldn't buy it. Anything else? Suppose I'm on an operating table and they're going to just inject me with that. What is it? Sodium pentothal? They tell you to come backwards, you know, from 10 to 1. If you ever noticed, you'd never make it. I always think about counting backwards, and you wake up in the recovery room. But man, if they were doing that procedure, and I saw a 14-year-old boy walk in there with the surgical gloves on and a gown, and I said, who's he? And they said, he's your surgeon. And I said, well, who is this guy, Doogie Hauser? They said, no, this guy's never studied medicine, but he's sincere. I'll bet you I could count backwards to a million. I wouldn't let him touch my body, would you? I want the peace of mind of knowing that this man or woman who has his hand in my innards is not just sincere, but he's an authority in his field. Does anybody else long for that kind of peace here every day in every way? Umpiring your life, making the decisions, then go to the only authority that we have and cry out as it cries out, search me, O oh God, tonight, know my heart today. You want his peace? Don't, don't, friend, try to turn down the light, brighten it. Try me, O oh Savior, know my thoughts, I pray and cleanse me from every sin and set me free. Free from guilt, from worry, from looking over your shoulder all the time. I wonder if they will know down there and the shame that comes from living with nothing, something to hide. And all oh, the joy though, isn't it true of the experience that some of you have that comes from saying, oh, I'm not perfect, I'm just a fellow struggler, but what you see is what you get. I got nothing to hide. I got nothing to hide. They took his broken body and they made him carry the cross until he could carry it no more. Then they took it and dropped it in a hole and I'm convinced it wasn't only the physical trauma that killed our Lord Jesus Christ that day. Psychologists estimate that if you could, you could empty 75 to 80% of our hospital beds if you could do away with guilt. 
And that day, one of the things took the life of our Lord that Jesus took on himself was the guilt of all of us, every bit of it upon his own body. And he hung there in shame for what you and I are trying to hide. That as he hung there in obedience to the Father, it's as if every drop of his blood again and every fiber of his flesh was crying out, Good news! Good news! You've got nothing to hide. I'll take the shame. I'll take your guilt. You can have, maybe for the first time, the peace of knowing that he has declared you guiltless and that you're living blameless, innocent, above reproach, with nothing to hide. But Paul says very quickly, there's a last part of the prescription that we need to take a look at because if you want a prognosis for real peace of mind, because it's robbing many of us, and that is living with nothing to lose. So in verse 17 and 18 he says, But even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, even if they kill me, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Somebody said every decade has its demons. And you know, the thing that bubbles to the top and captures man's soul at that time, in my judgment, I think one of the greatest of these gremlins in the 90s has got to be the almost unbelievable grip of things that we see upon ourselves, members of the Forever family. I, I just see countless hundreds that are robbed of any significant peace in their life and their family and in their marriage by a mad dash to get it and then keep it. Maybe you saw it, was it 60 Minutes or 2020? Interviewing a well-known anchor man of one of the major American networks recently. It was fascinating to hear what he said. They talked about his, his success and his six-digit salary. But then he said, I wake up every morning hating the thought of going to work in every minute of the day. And they asked, but why? And they said, well, all my life I wanted to sit in that chair. And he pointed to the anchorman's chair. And now I'm there. And he said, I've got to spend the rest of my life protecting that thing. He said, I have found and come to realize it isn't a worthy goal. It has robbed me of every bit of peace I had. Then you compare that to a man like Don Richardson. Some of you have read his fascinating book or heard him speak, Peace Child. There he was, pouring out his early years of ministry to cannibals and headhunters and everything that his wife and his little baby and himself had. You could put it in a little dugout canoe. And they stepped out of that canoe to be surrounded by 2,600 unwashed and untamed headhunters. All you have to do is read that book or if you've ever heard him share there's a peace and there's a vibrancy and there was a joy in this man's life that that anchor man he didn't know anything about and sad to say many of the members of the forever family don't know much about what's the difference. He was living I think with nothing to lose. They're living with something to lose. 
he let go of all of his stuff. No, 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 maybe God won't call you to sell it all or give it away. We're not talking about some kind of an anti-materialistic kick here. But I mean he had stopped holding it like this. And he'd start holding as Brother Bombay is have, has been having us do like this. World of difference, isn't there? How are you hanging on to your stuff? Because I'm quite convinced, let's pull off the fancy language for a moment or two. There's not a man or a woman in this place that isn't immune to the lure in Alberta today of stuff. Starts when we're real small, doesn't it? With babies. Have you ever thought about that? They're so wonderful, they're free, we start giving them all this stuff. Give them a teddy bear and a rattle. And the first thing they begin, begin to do is protect their stuff. Mine. Mine. You never hear them say that, do you, until they have some stuff. So to remedy it, we give them more stuff. In fact, we have to build a box so we can have some place to keep their stuff in. Then we give them their own room with a big closet where most of their stuff resides. Then later as an adult we have to build a house with a 25 year mortgage. Why? To keep our stuff. And if we're fortunate at all we'll have a large three car garage where most of our stuff goes. When you came to come out here to Alberta Beach you packed a few bags, some more than others to bring some of your stuff. But friends, it is almost trite to remind you that when we leave this terra firma, we are going to leave it all here. Now we know all, we all know that. You say, why remind us of that? Because I see so many of us spending so much time building little empires and kingdoms and citadels and protecting this stuff. And I'm there too. And it's so loud, the banging of the stuff, that you can't hear the father beckoning and say, Come here. Come here. I'll show you a peace beyond your wildest dreams. It's not the peace of having nothing to eat. I'm not talking about the peace again of having nothing to wear or nowhere to live. No, thank God for all the stuff that he has given you. But what the Spirit is whispering is, my child, how are you using it? How are you wearing it? Do you wear it light? Do you wear it lightly? As if you're living with nothing to lose. I find that I have to fight that, that daily. Joy and I were just talking about that this afternoon again. We've been so blessed financially, so beautifully, and I find myself constantly wrestling with protecting that stuff at the price of having his, his peace, of living with just nothing to lose. When I was down in the States this last year, I heard Ken Davis tell a story, and I don't think I'll ever forget it, and maybe some of you have heard him tell, of a man, young man, who won that battle. His name was Mike O'Hara. When Ken met him, he said this young man was 22 years old, completely bald from chemotherapy. 
where he learned from his doctors about a couple of weeks, a few weeks before that he had three months to live, 90 days to live. He was dying of an incurable bone cancer. Ken tells how he said he just, he had never met a man that was so vibrant and enthusiastic over life. His eyes were filled with joy and they glistened when they talked and, and uh, he just had an impish kind of humor. He was telling us how when he lost all his hair, he went to a costume party dressed as a can of Ban Roll-On deodorant. But he ministered daily through Youth for Christ to a high school group of audience and one day Ken was with them and they were going down the, the hall when they heard the, this empty hall after class they heard the heavy steps of steel-toed boots behind them and they turned to see a large, a big, burly man in a leather jacket studs everywhere he said he had gloves on you know these kinds with no fingers in it you've seen the type his very stance just said I'm important, I'm valuable, believe it or I'll force you. And he yelled at Mike, Hey you, Baldy! Sneer all over his face. Baldy, he said. What's wrong with your hair? What happened to your hair, Baldy? Ken said, just in him, immediate anger. He said, I had an instant distaste for this guy. He said, I'm not a fighter either, but I just wanted to take that guy and go over and just right in the kisser. <laughs> Say, nothing's wrong with his hair, Bushy. What's wrong with yours? But not Mike. Not Mike. The man he was ridiculing just turned to him and said, what this? Ah, this, this is no big thing. This is from chemotherapy, undying of cancer. And he said he took two or three steps towards the guy, and you could see that the man was trying to bolt away from him. But Mike got there first. And he said although the guy was about six inches taller, Mike pinned him against the lockers and began to poke him like this in the chest with his finger. And said, you, you don't have to be afraid. And with a curse, the guy said, I'm not afraid. Mike said, yeah, you're afraid. He said, I'm dying. I don't, I don't like dying. I'm not looking forward to dying at 22. I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid to die. Then he said, right there in the hall, he told this, this young man how Jesus Christ had transformed his life and had given peace. Right smack in the face of death. That young man didn't come to Christ that day, but I'll guarantee you one thing, wherever he is today has a big bruise right in his chest. And it's not because of Mike's finger, it's because of his words. Because you can't look a 22-year-old man in the face that has 90 days or less to live and see his eyes just, just dance with peace and joy and not be affected for life. Ken said they went out for lunch the same day. Mike leaned across the table to him, he said, and said, Ken, you're nervous, aren't you? He said, yeah, I'm nervous. He said, why are you nervous? You think this disease is contagious? Ken said, I, I don't know, Mike, I, he said, and he said with that he rubbed his hands all over his shiny head and then reached across and rubbed it all over him and said, it is contagious. 
Then he drew sober. He drew sober and said, it's because I'm dying, isn't it? Ken said he started to cry, and, and Mike said, I, I, and said to him, Mike, I don't know what to say to you. I'm afraid to lose. I, I'm afraid to love you. I'm afraid to give myself to you because I know that you won't be here with me many more days. And I can't bear that thought. And he said, Mike leaned across the table to him and said, Ken, you're a fool. Now that'll make you stand up and take notice. He said, yeah, you're stupid. He said, we're both dying. The only difference is, is God has let me know how much time I have and he hasn't yet let you know. You could go outside and a truck could run over you someplace. And then he said he leaned forward and he said those words that he said he will never forget. He said to Ken, I got nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose. But my house! Not Bible school, Lord, but our cottage, but my work. And he said, come on, I'll show you an experience, something you're not going to believe. But what if I get sick? There's danger. It's better to be safe than sorry, my dad always said. Ah, oh, friends, we got nothing to lose. Three weeks later, Mike drew his last breath, and when he drew that next breath, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. Nothing to lose. When you live like that, adventures at your fingertips and peace, his peace is your partner all the time, isn't it? Anybody else here tonight wants to have that kind of peace and adventure? That's what happened to Paul here in verse 17. That's the only thing that could make sense and why a man would say the words of verse 17. You remember the setting? Paul's enemy said, You stop preaching that peace stuff, that contentment in whatsoever situation stuff, or we'll, we'll beat you up. Remember old Paul, he was really intimidated, wasn't he? Do you remember his response? He says, I count it a privilege. Look at me funny like that, it's in the book. Well, they looked at one another funny like that too and thought, who thought, thought out this stupid plan? They were dumbfounded. Man, we can't give them privileges. So they said, we'll go further than that. We'll kill you. What was his response? Okay, for me to live is Christ. And if I die, I get promoted. Either way, I win. What will it be? Privileges or promotion? They promoted them. And they didn't even know it. They thought they'd taken his life away. And when they came to check to see if he wasn't there, he wasn't. He was with the Lord. I, I don't know about you, friends, but more and more the older I live, I simply don't want to stand on that day and get a glimpse. And we will stand on that day. Everyone who is in this building tonight will stand before him on that day if the words of this book are true and they are true. I don't want to stand on that day and get a glimpse of his glory and his grace and his power and his peace and say, why didn't I take advantage of that while I was on earth in Edmonton and hear him say to me, it was because you were afraid to lose your stuff. It was Sunday morning now. 
The women made their way towards the grave and the Bible says that when they got near there they realized that something was terribly wrong because the stone that covered the mouth of the tomb was rolled away. And they hastened their pace and suddenly they were terrified because there was a man standing there that looked a lot like a 10,000 watt searchlight. You say, that's not in my Bible. No, it isn't. The only reason it isn't in your Bible is because it didn't have a 10,000 watt searchlight. The Bible says he shone like lightning. And they were afraid. Ah, oh, but he said, ladies, don't be afraid. The one that you seek is not here. Good news! Good news! He is risen. Good news! You can know his peace. You got nothing to prove. You got nothing to hide. You got nothing to lose.